Mark, I was re-watching The Wolf of Wall Street just the other day, really? and I thought to myself, yes, wouldn't it be good to make all that money without doing, you know, all that bad stuff? Well, it certainly would, Simon, without the bad stuff. Yes. Well, Mark, after the film finished, I hopped onto the internet, as you do, and I found this site called Shopify. Have you heard of Shopify? I think I might have done, but tell me. Well, Shopify is the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, or grow your own business. Yes, I have heard of Shopify. It's the commerce platform revolutionising millions of businesses worldwide. That's right. Whether you're selling Danish pastries or cherry wine. Lovely. Shopify simplifies selling online and in person so you can successfully grow your business. Full of the industry-leading tools ready to ignite your growth, Shopify gives you complete control over your business and your brand without learning new skills in design or coding. And what's lovely about Shopify is that no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify will be there to empower you with the confidence and control to take your business to the next level. Sign up for a £1 per month trial period at shopify.co.uk slash Kermode. Hello? Not mayo. All lowercase. Go to shopify.co.uk slash Kermode. Take your business to the next level today. That's shopify.co.uk slash Kermode. Something wrong here. Without mayo. Today's show is brought to you by... Uh, child three, who <laughs> right. very grumpily was woken up so that he could be ready for the courier when the courier knocked on the front door to say, I've come to pick up Mark's laptop. Okay, some context for this. Yes. Um, if you've listened to the most recent questions, Schmestions, that was recorded under what can only be described as difficult circumstances. Back like the old days of COVID. Exactly. Of a bilateral laptop failure. Yes. Uh, I was in um, Cornwall and you were in uh, Showbiz North London. Mm -hmm. Both of our laptops were failing. Yours was refusing to charge up, and you've got one port that you can either charge or put a microphone into it, right? Yeah. So you had like 11%, but you, so you could either you could charge it or you couldn't be heard. Mine, meanwhile, the hinge on it had broken on the screen, yeah. and the screen was doing that thing about the lines were appearing on the screen that were, that were gradually obliterating the entire screen. And the longer this went on, the less of the screen I could see. So I couldn't turn the thing. I couldn't make anything work. But you had to turn off because your I just thing died. wasn't charging. I died. Anyway, so then my laptop died. And the good lady professor, her indoors, lent me her laptop. You can tell the difference because my laptop's got the um, This Machine Kills Fascists on it. And her laptop has got, nevertheless, she persisted. And then at your house this morning, I left the good lady professor, her indoors, his laptop in your house, because I looked at it, thought, that's not mine. Yes. And then went out. So it is currently in its, like Emerson, Lake and Palmer, when they were on tour and they had a truck each, mm. it is currently en route from Showbiz North London yes. to our glamorous studio. We'll probably hear it arrive live on this podcast. I certainly hope so. And uh, yeah, that was quite a thing. But And also Child 3 should be fast asleep by now. When does uh, Child 3 usually get up? About midday. Something like that. So he, so this is a major intrusion. But I told him it was his contribution to the podcast, and at that point he um, he went, oh, "Okay." Is he entirely nocturnal? Pretty much. Yes, it's the comedy world. You see. So what time does he go to bed? Three a.m. Oh right. Okay. Fine. So that would explain it. Yeah. So therefore, being woken up at nine to put your laptop, laptop in, in a in a in a supermarket carrier bag. Yes. There'll be an upmarket supermarket waitrose 
Almost certainly it'll be Waitrose. <laughs> if Waitrose want to send us some sponsorship, then that's fine. So today's show is brought to you by Waitrose, it even is. though <laughs> even though they have not contributed at all. Uh, anyway, so that's all fine and dandy. When it arrives, yes, and obviously the point of it is it's got your notes on it. Yes. So because do I don't know anything unless I, re I read. Can you remember what you're going to review? Can, well, I've, I've got it written down on a piece of okay. paper here. I'm going to be reviewing uh, Perfect Days, which is the new film by Vim Vendors. Uh, Shoshana, we interviewed Michael Winterbottom on, well, you did, on uh, last week's show. Yeah. And uh, Wicked Little Letters, which is uh, out in cinemas today. And also, in our rundown of the top ten, we will be reviewing, by popular demand, Madam Web, which I couldn't review last week. I wasn't offered a screening of it, um, right. but I have now seen it. Always an in interesting sign if you haven't been offered a screening. Well, I mean, maybe it was just that they forgot. Or maybe because it's pants, but we'll find out. Uh, our guest... Uh, on this podcast is Jonathan Glazer, who um, at the BAFTAs at the weekend for his movie Zone of Interest picked up um, Best British Film, Best Film Not in the English Language, which as a combination is unique. Yes. Uh, and also Best Sound. Uh, nominated for five Oscars. Very good. Uh, uh, very good BAFTAs for them. Yes. Very good BAFTAs. Incredibly good. And uh, anyway, so you'll hear from Jonathan Glazer. And also there's been, there's been a lot of correspondence about Zone of Interest, particularly about the thermal imaging sequences uh, in there, all of which come up in the conversation with Jonathan, which you'll hear a bit later on. Uh, also, in our in our other takes, the extra takes, the take two uh, bits and pieces, weekend watch list, the weekend not list, that's our top recommendations. Bonus reviews of... Bonus, re bonus review of Memory, which is the new film for which... Um, uh, You've forgotten. No, Jessica Chastain, okay. thank you. See, I did that even without my laptop, uh, is nominated for the uh, Independent Spirit Awards, which I think is happening this weekend. So, yes, we were doing Memory, which is very good. Also, Plot Smash, uh, where you have to guess which three... Well, Mark has to guess which three films have been smashed together. It's mm. going to be fine. Don't worry about it. One Frame Back is films about clairvoyance inspired by Madden, Madden Webb. <laughs> can anything be better? Uh, you can access everything via Apple Podcasts, or you can head to extratakes.com for non-fruit-related devices. If you're already a Vanguard Easter, as always... With feeling... We, we salute you. you. Ashley in Malmo. Hello, Ashley. I want... Dear... I want to know what love is, and I want you to show me. <laughs> Actually, we haven't had that as a, as a wise, no. wise words, have we? And it's your turn this week, isn't it? It is. It is. I actually like that song. I want to know. Yeah. Who's it by? Foreigner. Big, foreigner. Big kind of gospel-y chorus at the end. It's just huge. <clears throat> Why are Foreigner called Foreigner? Because uh, they have an English lead singer. I forget his name at the moment. But, but they are from? America. So he... so. It's like he's a foreigner in a, in an American. Is, is that band. actually why they're called? Foreigner? I do believe that is the case because they're an American band with an English lead singer. I think that is correct. Okay, and that's that's go. cleared that up. Thank you. It's not funny. It's the, not particularly entertaining, but it's factually correct. Do you want to repeat what the what the great redactor just told you? Well, the great redactor, him indoors. Him indoors. <laughs> he said basically, there's Americans and there's Brits. Yes. in the band. So wherever they are in the world, they're foreign. At least three members of the band will be foreign. Yes. It's, you know, it's something like that. Okay, fine. And it's Lou Graham who's the lead, I think he's the lead singer who does the whole, I want to know what love is. That one. What other hits did they have? Hold the Line? No, that was Toto. Um, Toto, not to be confused with Toto Coelho, who ate cannibals. What? That's a very strange song. Yeah. I eat cannibals... It's incredible or it's inedible. This could be your this could be your oh, wise words. It's inedible. Hold Incre the line. That Hold was, the line. That was foreigner. 
No, that, early was it? foreigner. Yeah, but the one about hold the line, love isn't always on time. Waiting for a waiting girl like for a girl that's like the one. you. That's their other big hit. Thank I'll you. Be waiting and cold for as ice. a girl like you to hit me with a knife. I'm confusing my like yacht rock band. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yacht rock doesn't exist. Yacht Rock was, it was com- completely made up genre. If it's got Michael McDonald on it, it's Yacht completely Rock. Completely made up genre. Steely Dan, Foreigner. Yacht Rock. It's no such rock. thing. It is so. It's yeah, so exactly. It's just, you know. But if you've got a yacht and you're listening to rock, it's Yacht Rock. There you go. I, 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 I don't believe that Steely Dan belong in a category called Yacht Rock. Anyway, Ashley in Malmo. Yes. Third time email of... We're just filling, waiting for my laptop. Veteran listener and one of those catalysts for the fetishism of Swedish phrases. Okay, if you fine. remember, slide in on a shrimp sandwich. Yes. From the olden days. Yes. I can recall two times I felt distinctly foreign when it comes to film. Okay. This was sparked by the conversation last week about, you know, feeling completely integrated and then suddenly... Suddenly realising that you're not. Yes. Once most recently in Sweden when taking my three-year-old daughter on her first cinematic experience, we went to see a film called... Bamza and the World's Smallest Adventure, a film about a charming, fluffy yellow bear with the strength of Popeye, the wit of Paddington, who rescues his daughter from a Honey, I Shrunk the Kids nightmare. The film did the typical kids' film thing of balancing slapstick kids' humour with sly adult references. Now, I understand most Swedish, but puns and idioms still stump me. Lo and behold, the references to other kids' programs were lost on me, but not on my daughter. And the political jibes went over my head too and elicited a chuckle from my wife. Never have I felt more alien, not just in a cinema, but among my own family. Also, a quick second time, I went to see John Wick 4 in Berlin whilst visiting there. I had completely forgotten that films in... Germany are often dubbed. Thus, three hours of poorly synced German dialogue and unintelligible German subtitles followed. I quickly Googled the script for the film uh, and managed to somewhat enjoy it by slyly reading the script at the same time as viewing. I concede using a mobile phone whilst viewing is a a grave code violation. But why would you dub it and have subtitles? If it's dubbed, you you don't need the subtitle. You dub it into German and then you subtitle it back into English. No? Or did you... No? Anyway... How weird. Thanks. Um, I quick. Yeah. So Google. Anyway, Ashley says thanks for keeping spirits up every weekend. Since my last correspondence, we've had a second daughter, Amelia, who now joins in with our weekly Saturday listening of the podcast, capital T, capital P, <laughs> while making pancakes. She takes part in the ritual, whether she wants to or not. At this point, admittedly, down with all people who identify ironically with politically correct ways to say Nazi. Anyway, that's Ashley and Melmo. Very good. So, uh, and that continues, there's there's more correspondence on that uh, later about when a movie suddenly takes you out of your comfort zone. I had a strange experience of of this. I was at the, I was at the Berlin Film Festival, the Berlin Ali, but of course I wasn't at the film festival. What I was doing is what I do this time, chaperoning, because the good lady, Professor Her Indoors, takes 40 odd students, not 40 odd students, something around about 40 students. About 30 odd about students. About 30 odd students and about 10, 10 normal. To, uh, to the Berlin Olympics. And my job is entirely to, you know, like when you have school crocodiles, like, you know, it's like a crocodile of people and you get them across the road, you yes. get them onto the U-Bahn and then you get them off the U-Bahn and the, the, and the doors are never open long enough to get all 40 off of one train at Potsdamer Platz and onto the other one. Is that so, Bahn, 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 but Autobahn? Is that the Autobahn? 
No, the U, the the under the the the, the, the barn, 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 autobahn is is the road. Yeah, that's Kraftwerk. But I was yeah. just I was just making but, but the, the Kraftwerk but, reference to you because you used the word barn, so I thought I'd get in there. Well, maybe it's not called that. The the the, 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 the subway system isn't that called the U bot? It's got a big U on it. There was a, when you're on that when you underground when you're on the platform that we're at. Literally, the line that we're on is called U two, and. Everywhere you look, the sign says, you too, you too, you too, you too. Yeah. And a fellow colleague said, it's like the Apple phone debacle all over again. And also, I mean, Zoo Station is where they got the name for their album from, because Zoo Station is the name of one of the underground stores. It is, stores. yeah, absolutely. So, did you, and, did you and, get off at Zoo Station just to enjoy listening to the album? I have got off at Zoo Station before, because it's um, we it's, it's Christiana F., which I think is a very, very fine film, is based on a book called... We the children of the Bahnhof Zoo, which is the which is the zoo station. Right. So I have done that. Anyway, so the point was we were seeing a couple of there's a couple of films in the generation strand, and one of them, which was very elusive and very kind of um uh a little bit woo, a little bit woo. A little bit woo, a little bit way, yes. Yeah. But clearly the subtitling had been done in a rush. And it was one of those things in which I think the subtitles were were accurately depicting exactly what was said. Oh, ladies and gentlemen. Ladies and gentlemen. A laptop in a Waitrose bag. That's fantastic. Today's programme brought to you by Waitrose It's a wet Waitrose bag, incidentally. Absolutely. It's a, yeah, fine, there we go. Anyway, so the subtitling appeared to have been done by AI that that was simply saying exactly what everyone on screen was saying, which often is not, because actually subtitling is a kind of, it's an art, it's like poetry. There's a guy called Tony Raines who does brilliant subtitling. But it, so it was very, very literal, which meant that it didn't make a whole bunch of sense sometimes. I think the movie itself probably didn't make a whole bunch of sense sometimes. But anyway, there we are. So on the subject of German films. Yes. It, what, what are you going to be reviewing now that you have access to your notes? Well, I've, I've said what we're going to be reviewing in general. Well, but do I can, one. I can now do a film. So Perfect Days. Do one. Perfect Days, German-Japanese co-production directed by Wim Wenders, um, uh, who made Kings of the Road, Paris, Texas, Wings of Desire. Uh, co-written, good with... friend of you too. Yes, he is a good friend of you too. Well, Last time I saw him was in Berlin, having been to a uh, a U two concert, which then stopped after two songs because Bono lost his voice. So then we all retired to the hotel where Vin well, so, Bender. So you know, so some things worked out well. That's quite unnecessary. <laughs> anyway, go on. Anyway, okay, fine. So um, it stars uh, Japanese actor Koji Yakusho. It premiered in competition at Cannes last year, won the prize of the ecumenical jury and uh, best actor for Koji Kusho. He plays a janitor, Hiriyami, who works for the Tokyo Toilet Company. His life is very structured. He wakes up in the morning, he rolls up his bed, he steps out of his house and there's a vending machine there. He gets a drink out of the vending machine, he gets into his van, he drives to work listening to cassettes of his favourite music, Lou Reed. Patti Smith, Nina Simone, The Kinks, because Vendor's um, early feature, first feature, I think, was dedicated to The Kinks. He takes great pride in his work in properly cleaning the toilets that he's that he's attending to. He has a young co-worker, youthful co-worker, Takashi, who, who in one of the, the thing is divided into four, four separate days. In one of them, just he just wants to finish quickly and go off with his girlfriend. At lunchtime, our central hero has a sandwich in a park, exchanges glances with a similarly singular woman. He loves trees. He tends to plants, which sometimes he will get a plant from the park and he'll take it back home. And at night, he reads before going to sleep and having expressionistically rendered dreams. And over the course 
of four days, we see him repeat these rituals. Here is a clip. So, co-written by Takuma Takasaki and uh, Vin Vendors, as I said, played very, very well in Cannes. And over the course of the of the movie, a series of separate kind of interlocking stories are told in which at one point there's an attempt to sell some of his loved cassettes and um, it turns out they're very valuable, but the whole thing is that he loves cassettes, he loves the way cassettes sound and he doesn't want to part with them because, you know, they're, they're, they're worth this money. He has uh, a visit from uh, a young relative who uh, he allows to come and come to work with him for a while and they have a kind of interaction and he goes to the park and he, as I said, he, he, he meets this uh, meets this other apparently sort of similarly singular soul. But the whole thing plays out in this very, very sort of gentle register that everything is very amusing. It's almost like a kind of, it's almost like mindfulness as a movie. It's very much like it's not linear plot-led. It's about somebody with these rituals that their life is run by, finding um, perfection and finding pleasure and sadness in the simplest of things. And during the course of this, we we sort of learn about his buried sadnesses. I mean, this whole thing about his interaction with his niece, um, the uh, the discussion about how his family may or may not have been separated from him, why it is that he that he does the job that he does, why it is that he does the job so 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 I mean there are there are long scenes of him cleaning toilets really, really efficiently, making sure everything is properly clean. At one point he discovers behind one of the the tiles, um, somebody has done what we what we call noughts and crosses. They call tic tac toe, um, and somebody has put what. And so he starts playing a game of tic tac toe with somebody who he doesn't know who he is. There's a documentary about Vin Vendors. I've mentioned this before. It was made in the '90s by um, Chris Rodley and Paul Joyce, and it's called Vin Vendors Motion and Emotion. And it's a very good documentary, but it features Krofetzel, who is a German film critic, who says this thing, which is that he says that all Wim Wenders films can be basically summed up with the following phrases. Children are strange, aren't they? And women are strange, aren't they? Let's put another song on the jukebox. And the weird thing about it is that actually that applies absolutely to this film, even though it is a late period Wenders in which he's he kind of moved on from doing that. But here, that idea is sort of perfectly encapsulated. The way in which we get songs played out on these cassettes, the way in which the, the the mechanism of the cassette is fetishized, the way in which somebody listens to the Patti Smith uh, uh, song Redondo Beach, and then they ask they ask to listen to a song again because they love the way a cassette sounds. It, it, it is like somebody took the very essence of Vendors and baked it into this film. People have loved the movie. I don't love it. I think it's good. I think it's really charming. It's got a great central performance. And it's got 
it's got real heart to it. And it is easy to see why it was that Koji Kusho won the, um, you know, as I said, won the, won, won the Best Actor Award at Cannes. That absolutely makes sense because it, his, the whole film rests on his face. And there's a key scene toward the end of the film in which he has an expression on his face which is somewhere between smiling and crying, somewhere between ec- ecstasy and despair. And the film is the very definition of bittersweet and poignant. And I liked it. I'm not sure that I like it as much as everybody else appears to, but it is very, very ambient and very calming to the soul. I could watch it and listen to it on my phone then, <laughs> just as I'm falling asleep. Um, still to come in this here podcast, reviews of... Uh, reviews of Shoshana, because we interviewed uh, Michael Winterbottom last week, and Wicked Little Letters, which is uh, yes. the new film with Olivia Colman and Jesse Buckley, uh, reuniting them after their stint together in The Lost Daughter. Also a little bit of Madam Webb uh, in there. A uh, conversation with Jonathan Glazer, uh, already with three BAFTAs under his arm, and Wise Wise Words, in which Mark and I, in alternating weeks, have to guess the artist and terrible song during the break. This is the most easy one I've ever done because it actually includes the title of the song in the words, but I have to okay. I have to do that to give you the rhyme. It's just a way of going... Really? I mean, probably a 10-year-old in primary school could have come up with a better rhyme. Okay. Here here are the words. Here we go. We don't have to take our clothes off to have a good time. I know what this is. Well, that's it, isn't it? We can dance and party all night. And have some cherry wine. drink some Some cherry wine. wine. So... We don't have to right. take Right, so that's ch- cherry, cherry wine. Cherry wine, <laughs> Okay, anyway. I, I mean, all has th- been revealed, but there'll be more. I used to think that line was, and drink some sherry wine. After this. Mark, I was re-watching The Wolf of Wall Street just the other day, really? and I thought to myself, yes, wouldn't it be good to make all that money without doing, you know, all that bad stuff. It certainly would, Simon, without the bad stuff. Yes. Well, Mark, after the film finished, I hopped onto the internet, as you do, and I found this site called Shopify. Have you heard of Shopify? I think I might have done, but tell me. Well, Shopify is the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, or grow your own business. Yes, I have heard of Shopify. It's the commerce platform revolutionising millions of businesses worldwide. That's right. Whether you're selling Danish pastries or cherry wine, Shopify simplifies selling online and in person so you can successfully grow your business. Full of the industry-leading tools ready to ignite your growth, Shopify gives you complete control over your business and your brand without learning new skills in design or coding. And what's lovely about Shopify is that no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify will be there to empower you with the confidence and control to take your business to the next level. Sign up for a £1 per month trial period at shopify.co.uk slash Kermode. Hello? Not Mayo. All lowercase. Go to shopify.co.uk slash Kermode. Take your business to the next level today. That's shopify.co.uk slash Kermode. Something wrong here. Without Mayo. Well, hello there. Simon and Mark here to tell you about Indeed. Yes, Indeed is driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. If you need to hire, then you need Indeed. 
Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data. And if you're busy watching all of this week's film recommendations and you have no time, then you can use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. But Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 75% of employers claim Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other online job sites. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So, the more you use Indeed, the better it gets, like us. Why not join the more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast? Listeners of this show will get a £100 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed Indeed.com slash Kermode Mayo. That's indeed.com slash Kermode Mayo. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed. Indeed. The, the reason why I included Jermaine Stewart's yes. song. Oh, Jermaine Stewart's. Yes. Uh, we'll have to take a close up. Is you would think, I mean, it's like it was done with no thought at all. <laughs> to have a good time. <laughs> We can dance party all night and drink some, I mean, Riesling would have worked or a rosé. Mateus. Some cherry. I mean, anything with just two syllables is going to work. But is there such a thing as cherry wine? I mean, I'm sure the Germans. Is it real? I'm sure the Germans have, have got, it sounds like a German thing, doesn't it? But Cherry wine. It is a song by Hosier called Cherry Wine. Take me to church, that guy. I don't know, it just says Hosier, cherry oh. wine. There's a video. I'm not clicking on that. What is a cherry wine? Cherry wine. Ripe cherries are fermented to make cherry wine. Yeah, really? Okay, the that's fr- it. The fruit's bold flavor profile typically produces a sweet, tart, and acidic flavor. This type of wine is typically more narrowed and unique in areas with ideal cherry growing traditions. Yes. I mean, basically, was no it one. Crackling rosy. Was that a cherry wine? Yeah, it was a rose. No, that was a rose. rose. The whole the thing rose. was about rose, hence, yeah. the, ne- hence the term. Rosé yeah. in the title. Although but, he doesn't say crackling rosé, he says crackling rosy. I know, but it's the same kind of thing. It's not the same. It's crackling rosy, you're a store-bought woman. You're a store-bought woman. I was thinking, well, that's a weird thing. And then you go, oh, it's about a bottle of wine, yes. which I bought in a store. You get me for th- something you, like a freight train buzzing. No one listening to this podcast has had cherry wine. That's my contention. You know, if, if, you, if you have had it, then obviously let us know. But why use a type of wine? I was going to say Jermaine, but there's no point because he's not with us anymore. But... What is the point of having a reference? Everyone goes, what What the hell is that? I would hazard a guess that if somebody said to you, we don't have to take our clothes off, we could just drink some cherry wine. A lot of people would say, no, let's just take our clothes off because that just sounds much less bad than drinking the cherry wine. Well, I'm not quite sure about that. Depends. <laughs> depends. Depends how you're feeling. Amanda in Eastbourne, a long-term listener, second time, hopefully successful this time, emailer. Uh, Mark, Simon, and the production team, I hope you take this email not as a criticism, but as a correction. Oh, dear. I'm afraid you're both mispronouncing (gasps) Paul Mescal's name. It's not Mescal like the tequila drink, where the emphasis is on the last syllable, but Mescal with a soft ending. This was recently pointed out to a female interview on the red carpet by Paul Mescal's co-star Andrew Scott, who berated her for saying Paul's name wrong. I would hate for that to happen to you, Simon, during Gladiator 2 interviews. Yes, because he's... He'll be all buffed up. Yes. Hello to Jason with sadness in my heart. Oh, yes. And with sadness in my heart, love the show, Steve. Oh, okay, R.I.P. Okay, Amanda, thank you. But so, Paul Mescal. Paul Mescal. I had. I, Not Mescal. I did the um, the Critics. Oh, I told you this already. I did. I, I hosted the Critics Circle Awards, and Paul Mescal was there, and he, he won an award. 
and he was rocking a dinner jacket with no shirt. We've all done that after a cherry wine or two. <laughs> he had, he did have to take his clothes off. You only, you only do the dinner jacket with nothing underneath routine if indeed you are a gladiator. He said to me, um, he said, he said, oh, I love your tie. And I said, oh, um, uh, Linda buys all my ties for me. She gets them, you know, she gets them important. And Linda turned to him and she said, yes, yeah, do you like a good tie? Oh, no, you're not even wearing a shirt. Yeah, not much point <laughs> in that. Uh, box office top 10 at Not Charted. Uh, some and straight in at not charted. Straight in at not charted not at all. Uh, someone's daughter, someone's son, which I think is a really, uh, very, very good film about homelessness because it doesn't. I mean, there's people telling their stories really well, and it's Lorna Tucker. I think has managed to get great interviews out of them, but it doesn't just make you think this is terrible. It makes you think this is terrible, but it is solvable. And as I said before, if you just if you Google the title of the film, it will lead you to a bunch right. of pages in which you can do things to actually approach the problem. Now we got to proper numbers. Okay. I should say the box office top ten is from Comscore Movies. So thank you very much to the nice people at Comscore Movies for these numbers. Okay, number eighty-eight. One from the Heart reprise. I love One from the Heart, and I was absolutely thrilled that Boyd Hilton of this parish sent a message saying how lovely to hear you talking about One from the Heart because it's such a great film, and he's a big fan as well. So great that it's back in cinemas. Number 14 is The Glums, the re-release. Yeah, so this is The Les Miserables, which has been um, you know remastered and uh, re-monitored, and you know, but it's, it's the same film that it was before. And, uh, still Russell, got Russell Crowe. Still yeah. got Bart Russell Russell Crowe! It's in cinema. Cherry wine. Yeah. Uh, number 12 here, 17 in America, The Taste of Things. I saw a poster for this film. I hadn't realized that, that it has a quote on it that says, you feel that you can taste every frame, which is actually uh. a, because so much of the film plays out around the preparation of food. It's all about the preparation of food as a kind of philosophical thing. But that phrase, you can taste every frame. I wish I had written that. Uh, number 10 is All of Us Strangers. I think All of Us Strangers is really terrific. Paul Meskel. Yes. Particularly good. Andrew, um, Andrew Scott. And, no, it's pronounced Andrew Scott. Did you know that? Let's do that from now on. <laughs> um, I think it's a shame that it, it hasn't had the awards recognition that it should have had. I... I really think that it deserves Correct. to have had to have, to have because I I think it's a terrific movie and I think that it's one of those examples when people will look back in the future and go I can't believe it's not butter I can't believe that the film didn't didn't get more awards than it did Anyone but you is at number nine again I'm I'm afraid I haven't caught up with it because I was in Berlin the Berlinale getting forty people off one U-Bahn yes. onto another one. Ban, ban, ban. Ban, 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 Pepper's Cinema Party, is it number eight? Don't tell me you've missed out <laughs> on that at number eight, Pepper's Cinema Party. I did read an eye-watering description of it. I, was, I wasn't entirely sure that it was a film. It sounded more like something that happened to be happening in a cinema. Number seven here, number 11 in the States, Mean, 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 Mean Girl. Again, status quo. Uh, as we Pop say, it, 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 astonishing that a film that was initially designed, well, intended to go straight to streaming services has done as well as it has. Although a colleague of mine was particularly put out by the phrase, it's not your mum's mean girls, to which she replied, yes, it is. Uh, number six here, 26 in the States is The Iron Claw. Callum, the hitman sires, yes. says, I haven't been able to stop thinking about The Iron Claw since Sunday when I saw it. Recently on Questions, Questions, someone asked for a, for good depictions of toxic masculinity in film. 
and Fritz von Erich, the patriarch of the family, would be an excellent candidate. His abuse of his son's loyalties, forcing them to live out his failed dreams of glory, left me feeling angry, especially given the events that happened in the last act. Yes. What I find what I found particularly moving, though, was the von Erich brothers' love and respect for one another. I'm very close with my older brother, Rory, and the first thing I did after I left the theatre was to text him to tell him how much I appreciate and love him. Zac Efron has never been this good. We all know he's an excellent physical performer, but he was, the most, he was most impressive in moments of silence, wearing his conflict in repressed micro-expressions. Very good phrase. Thank you, Callum. I mean, I, 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 the only thing I would say is I think Efron has been really terrific in, in in a number of films. I think he's great in this. I think it is a really, really good performance, but I have always liked Efron. Into the top five from Comscore Movies. Uh, number five is Wonka. Still, still there, and five Eleventh, other states. 11th week. So we are going to be in a situation fairly shortly in which Timothée Chalamet is in the top 10 twice because Dune... Two or Dune Part Two, Dune Part Two. Yeah, is it was it, is it called Dune Part Two? Is yeah, it called Dune Part? No, it's Part Dune Two. Dune Part Two will will almost certainly go to number one, and Wonka is not dropping. So I think it's going to be a, a Timothée Chalamet double bill in the top ten. Uh, Denis Villeneuve and Hans Zimmer will be on the show, and the, you've done the interview I've, already. Yes, I've done the interview, and what there wasn't time to say because it's a, it's a really nice conversation. I think the one thing that I wanted to ask, but we kind of ran out of time, was: mm. Is there a tiny part of you, Denis, that is slightly annoyed that Wonka came out before Dune Two, so that when Timothée turns up for the first time, I go, oh, is it Wonka? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, with an ice cream and a bar of chocolate, did, did, singing had, and dancing. Had they shot? Dune Part 2 before Wonka. I don't know. But Wonka came out. Obviously, originally, Dune 2 was going to be out before Wonka. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so it was... Anyway. anyway. So uh, that's uh, that's a very good thing. So Wonka's at five. Argyle is at four. Three in America. Yeah, but, but so in its third week, it's at number four, which means that that absolute welter of negative emails the first week... Remember, I, I quite liked it. I thought it was the, the most fun Matthew Vaughan film since um, Kick-Ass. And then the very first week, there was nothing but negative emails. And I mean, really negative. People absolutely hated it. But it has found its audience. It is at number four in its third week, which means it's held on in the top five. Good for it. And at number three in the UK, uh, number two uh, in America, Madame Webb. Just an email here from Steve Howe, but not the 76-year-old guitarist <laughs> from Yes. <laughs> Uh, dear Sony and so far, please, please, please make Mark watch Madame Webb. Mm. I want to hear a jolly good rant. Thanks okay. in advance, Steve Howe. So, Madame Webb, fourth film in the Sony Spider-Man universe, following on from the Venom films and Morbius. Uh, directed, co-written by S.J. Clarkson, uh, making her feature debut. Other writers include the, the writing pair behind Morbius. Uh, Dakota Johnson is Cassie Webb, a paramedic whose mother, Constance, died while seeking a magical spider in the jungles of Peru. I'm not making this up. Now she's uh, saving lives. One day she has a near-death experience that unlocks hidden powers. Her hidden powers are she can see the near future. Oh. Here's a clip. Cassie! Cassie! I need you at the triage! Wait. O'Neal! Will you let me drive? What are you talking about? I, just, I don't know. I just... I have a weird feeling. Look, you had a bad experience on the job. Don't let it mess with your head. 
So she foresaw something, but can she change it? So after an incident happens with a bird, it turns out that she can possibly change the future as long oh. as she, she acts fast enough. Meanwhile, Ezekiel, played by Tarahim, is haunted by visions of a group of women who are bringing about his demise. He knows this is happening in the future, but using high-tech wizardry, he gets pictures of their faces, takes them back to what they would look like now, because he, he knows what they look like in the future, but he knows what they look like now. And they're just teenagers, played by Sidney Sweeney, who was great in reality. So that's O'Connor, uh, Isabel said. Um, they are going to become killers who will bring about his demise. So therefore he tracks them down using this high-tech stuff at a point where all their paths cross. And, you know, so origin story. Sounds like fun because, you know, interesting ideas to people in, in there that I, that I like um, isn't fun at all. Apparently costs somewhere between 80 and $100 million. That is 10 times as much as Godzilla minus one cost. And yet this looks... Like if you, if you showed the two films and said, which one of these cost 100 million, which one of these cost 10, you'd have it the other way around. Because to say that the visuals are shonky is to understate the level of, wow, is that really up there on the screen that that was considered to be possible at the point that it left the effects houses. The storytelling is on a par with Morbius. It's, you know, it's absolutely somewhere between pathetic and perfunctory. I mean, largely perfunctory, but just occasionally you just go, oh, absolutely not. There are some comic book movies which have got this kind of thing about, they sort of self-referentially refer to themselves and, you know, kind of make fun of the source or make jokes about the source of sort of nods and winks and all that kind of stuff. This, this, this just seems careless in the sense that it looks like Nobody who made it could care less about what they were doing. And I'm sure that's not true. I'm absolutely certain that the that whilst they were making it, the people who were making it wanted to make something good. And I, you know, that email said, what I want is a, a good rant. I mean, I, I'm afraid you're not going to get one because it, it's just disappointing to see something that lands so lamely. I mean, there's one, there's one scene in which Cassie's figured out that her heritage, you know, it's the thing back in Peru. So she goes to Peru which apparently is the size of a postage stamp because she arrives in Peru and literally standing there is the person that she's looking for. Hello. That's reassuring. I'm in Peru. I mean, you're more likely to find Paddington Bear. The action sequences are just a bunch of CG visuals, none of, I mean, some some of which look, I mean, to say they were televisual, I mean, television now looks so fabulous. Many of them just kind of look very computer gamey. The dialogue is terrible. I mean, I'm not very smart, but I even I felt my intelligence was being insulted by by some of it. And the whole thing is a setup for something which I'm pretty certain we're never going to see. So it's like a setup for something that we didn't need to, you know, we're not going to see the next one, so we didn't need to see it this time. And you, you know, you just end up thinking, okay, well, it's the film which makes the joke. I mean, it's about clairvoyance. And, you know, if only Dakota Johnson had been clairvoyant enough to see how this was going to work out, then perhaps you could have, you know, gone back in time and not made it. It's not, there's nothing worth ranting about it. It's just very, very poor. I mean, very, very shoddy and messy and foolish and uninteresting and 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 the worst thing about it is that you keep wanting it to get good. And, you know, Dakota Johnson, get, you, know, you keep wanting it to be good, and then it's just not. Number two is migration. Which is kind of fun, you know, the, the, it, with, but with the scary bits. And number one here and number one in America is Bob Marley, One, one love. love. Joe from Nottingham. Wanted to write in and tell you about my recent cinema experience. Myself, my partner and her father, both of whom are reggae enthusiasts, booked to see One Love at the Broadway Cinema in Nottingham. Okay. 
It was an absolutely joyful event for a couple of reasons. Firstly, whenever Lashana Lynch slash Rita Marley was making legitimate or truthful arguments to her on-screen husband, a woman sat nearby would express various audible gestures such as, <laughs> mm-hmm, yep, that's right. Normally, I'd consider any form of chatter in the cinema as a crime, but I just found her engagement with the on-screen drama so endearing and charming. Secondly, when the final titles came up on screen at the end, some in the audience couldn't help themselves by applauding the film. When the credits rolled, blaring one love, everyone sang along, including us. As people got up to leave, there was literal dancing and singing in the aisles. <laughs> Amongst friends and strangers, it was one of the most joyful and memorable cinema experiences I've had in a long time. Good. I mean, you know, as I said, I thought that I, I, I couldn't understand why critics were getting off their bike about the film so much when it, it's perfectly likable. I mean, it, it is very, very hagiographic. But hey... Yes, but hey, yes, I think yeah, I seem to seem to remember you did think it was disappointing. Well, it's a, it's it's at the soft end of these things because it takes all the rough edges off the story, and um, you know, and I think that it takes all the contradictions out of the character, and it only ever raises the you know, like there's the whole thing about yeah, you know, I did take care of the kids, and I did, and then it's like okay, fine, that's out of the right. way. But on the other hand, you know, the performances are, are fun and the music is great. And actually, I think the way in which they've integrated the spoken word and the music works rather well. It's just, it's just, it's just a film that doesn't have any of the real contradictions that its subject did and which made its subject more interesting. And number one here and number one in the States is quite some achievement. Uh, coming up in just a moment, my conversation with Jonathan Glazer. This episode is brought to you by the good folks at NordVPN. Mark, would you say that AI has been one of the hot topics of the last 12 months or I so? I would indeed yes. say that, Simon. We've had uh, writers and actors striking over the potential misuses of AI. We've had many films exploring the topic, including uh, Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1 and The Creator, among others. We have, and although technological advancements bring with them exciting things, they also open the door to cybercrime. Yes, and with all these technological improvements, cybercrime will become more accessible to the average criminal and will become more frequent. And I've said it once, and I'll say it again, this is why NordVPN is so important. With one click on the NordVPN app, you are protected, meaning that you don't have to be tech savvy. Their threat protection feature shields your devices from viruses, malicious malware and phishing sites. Also, one NordVPN account can be used on up to six devices. Plus, you can get access to streaming services in other regions, all for the price of a cup of coffee per month. To get the best available discount off your NordVPN plan, go to nordvpn.com take. There's no risk with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee. And you'll help support our podcast. The link is in the podcast episode description box. This episode is brought to you by Mubi, a curated streaming service dedicated to elevating great cinema from around the globe. From iconic directors to emerging auteurs, there is always something new to discover, such as... Well, such as High and Low, John Galliano, which is the thought-provoking new documentary from Oscar winner Kevin MacDonald, charting the rise and fall of the fashion designer John Galliano. It's, uh, it traces Galliano's working and private life through the decades, candidly investigating his struggles with addiction and the industry pressure he faced along the way. It features conversations with Naomi Campbell, Kate Moss, Penelope Cruz, Charlize Theron, uh, Anna Wintour, and many, many more. And it is showing in UK cinemas from March the 8th. Or you could explore the Women's Cinematographers Film Group, streaming
screening on Mubi in the UK from March the 8th. As women have found more equal footing in the film industries, directors, producers and screenwriters, cinematography remains a stubborn final frontier. Around International Women's Day, Mubi are spotlighting the artistic and technical work of women working behind the camera, including... Including films such as Annette from 2021, Benedetta from the same year, and more recently, Passages, all streaming in the UK from March the 8th. You can try Mubi free for 30 days at mubi.com slash Kermit and Mayo. That's mubi.com slash Kermit and Mayo for a whole month of great cinema for free. Now, our guest today is the screenwriter and director Jonathan Glazer, whose previous films include Sexy Beast, Birth, and 2013's Under the Skin. He's, of course, the man behind The Zone of Interest, the film exploring the life of Rudolf Huss, Commandant of Auschwitz. You'll hear my interview with Jonathan Glazer after this clip from The Zone of Interest. And that is a clip from The Zone of Interest. I'm delighted to say I've been joined by its uh, director and writer, Jonathan Glazer. Jonathan, hello, how are you? I'm good, Simon. Thank you. Nice to be with you. Well, it's very nice to have you uh, have you on our show. And congratulations. BAFTA for Best British Film, Best Film Not in the English Language, which must be a first, I think, and also the BAFTA for Best Sound. You have five Oscar nominations as well. How was that on Sunday? I'm still trying to process it, to be honest. It was uh, unexpected, really. I'm obviously delighted that the film's getting the attention that it is, and those award ceremonies obviously help that no end. Is it difficult to celebrate, given the nature and the extraordinary story that you tell in your film? Is it difficult? To, there must have been loads of people who won BAFTAs on Sunday who went out and parted. Is it more difficult for you when you've made this film? It's definitely... I'm trying, I'm trying to be as natural as I can be in those situations, but you're right. It's not a... You know, those parties and uh, award ceremonies, and they're great fun, of course, but there's... Yeah, we, I do, we do feel, I suppose, like a fish out of water with regards to this you know the subject of the film and so on but at the same time you do want to celebrate the fact that it is being seen and it's being talked about and uh all the people who've worked on it with me for so long you know i i don't want to be po-faced about the uh place we find ourselves at all but yeah it's uh yeah i just you know these events are not my natural habitat so yeah. I, I have a struggle with them anyway and it's taken you 10 years to to get this film made as i understand it does the story start with the martin amos novel of the same title is that where it begins for you i mean the story the martin amos novel was a really essential key spark for me really first spark um i do tend to need something to hold on to to begin with and martin amos's novel was definitely that on this occasion for me but then I think the more I then started to explore the uh, the real family who Martin Amos had based his fictional characters on, the more I became sort of fascinated by the kind of grotesque ordinariness of them, really. And, and uh, you know, spent a good two or three years immersing myself into the Auschwitz uh, and Birkenau State Museum archives. And obviously a huge, you know, a lot of wide reading around the subject more generally. But but the archives gave us an incredible source of fragments of testimony, really, that uh, talked about the Hoss family. And from those fragments, I was able to start to piece together a, a sense of, uh, of story of, uh, of who they were and how they lived. I came across um, the diaries of Rudolf Hoss when I was at university and read extracts of them then and remember being sort of appalled and 
staggered at the same time about this man who was the commandant of Auschwitz, who clearly cared for his wife, cared very much for his children, cared for wildlife, loved his animals, hated cruelty to animals. And they would get mm-hmm. on his horse, as we see in your film, and, uh, and ride into Auschwitz and, and run a killing machine. Just tell us what we need to know about Rudolf Hurst, played in your movie by Christian Friedel, and Hedwig, his wife, played by Sandra Huller. What was interesting, I think, in, in a lot of the research that we did was how, like I said, how ordinary he was, really, how, how undynamic he, he was. Primo Levi talked about him as a, uh, I think he said he's made from exactly the same clay as any member of the bourgeoisie in any country in Europe at the time. So there was, I think what was so extraordinary was how, yeah, was how unextraordinary he, he, he was. And, um, and these people obviously don't become mass murderers overnight. You know, him and his wife, Hedwig Hoss, met when they were 17 on a kind of back to the land program called the Artemis League for, you know, young people who were going to go into farming or agriculture. So that was how it seemed their lives were headed. And then, of course, he became involved in these kind of murderous ideologies. And so from a point of view of the Christian Friedland, Sandra Huller portraying those characters, Sandra approached it in a very interesting way. Really, in a way, she, she wasn't giving Hedwig Hoss any of her own imagination or color. She didn't need it at all. In fact, Sandra's talked about, certainly to me, that in a way she wasn't hard to play because she wasn't wrestling with anything. Hedwig Hoss was extremely uh, uh, comfortable in her own skin in the sense that uh, she had normalized the life that her and her husband had, had, were making for themselves. Um, so it wasn't a question of being in denial. It was actually that the horror was in how they had normalized the fact that they were living cheek by jowl with a death camp her husband was in charge of. And he would be, you know, murdering 10,000 people every day and coming home and having dinner with his children. And really for Sandra, I think what was so, for me, what was so important about her approach and why I think her performance is so extraordinary in the film is we talked about a uh, Hannah Arendt, of course. And one of the things Hannah Arendt described about these people is how non-thinking they were. And in order to think, one has to stop first. So from Sandra's point of view, it was like, well, if I don't stop, I'm never going to have to think. There's no, there will be no reflection, no self-reflection, which, of course, we wanted to avoid. So Sandra's performance is always, she's always occupying herself with, you know, menial tasks, one after the other. Uh, Christian's, uh, you know, R- Rudolf Hoss was certainly more, more opaque as a character. And we, because the film doesn't go over the wall to actually watch him in his sort of death factory, we see him, we, because the, ca- the camera and the scenarios sort of stay, you know, defiantly on the perpetrator side of the wall. We only ever see him when he comes home. And he's not talking about his work to his family. But at the same time, it, it's very clear that what he's doing and, and yeah. who he's doing it to. And um, so Christian's role was a different role. There was more opacity to his performance, which I think is, is very fitting. And I think he did brilliantly. It's one of the reasons that it took so long to get made, Jonathan, the 10 years that I mentioned, is that you got permission to film in Auschwitz. We are in the house that is just outside the Auschwitz compound. That doesn't happen Mm. quickly. Is that the main reason that it took so long? Or was it just the subject matter or trying to persuade Christian and Sandra to take the roles? What was it that took so long? I think it was, I'd say it was a combination of all of the things you cite really and other things. I think it wasn't, I wasn't adapting a book. So I had to sort of start again, really. Once I understood that I was going to follow the real people see see you know i had to create something i had to write something out of like i said out of those fragments so so the writing period took a long time and uh, the research actually I, pro- I was probably reading for two or three years and talking to people and watching things and immersing myself in that subject really before i put pen to paper 
So there were three years right there. It's a, it's a, it's a um, you know, it's a subject that you can't come to casually for obvious reasons. And then there was COVID, of course, in in, the, in 2020, and that delayed our production by a year, like so many other productions. But we used that year, I think, very well and wisely. And by the time we did get to Poland in the summer of 21, 2021, Chris Oddie, the production designer, really started to renovate this house and build the garden and everything you see in the film from scratch. But it was all, you know, we had a very clear plan of what we were, we were there to achieve. And then, as you say, Sandra was reluctant to take uh, the role uh, I, I understood why absolutely and but in the end thankfully she did and the film's all the richer for it but it was a long process because it you know it's it's full of rigor really a lot of the correspondence to us about your movie Jonathan has concentrated around the thermal imaging scenes can you just explain why they are so important to you and why they're so important to the story i was interested in meeting any survivors who were still alive and there were a handful of people who had survived the war they were poles they were non-jews they they were in their 90s at this point when i met them and some of them were members of the ak and the ak was the polish resistance movement so it was an underground movement one person i met in particular her name was alexandra bystron called zh check forgive my polish pronunciation and she I met her when she was 90. She was 14 at the time of the war. She lived two kilometers from Auschwitz. Her grandfather was an important engineer in the coal mine. And as a result of that, the Nazis allowed her and her family to stay put so that her grandfather could continue continue to work as an engineer in the coal mine, obviously for them. And as a 14-year-old, she she well, she joined the AK as a, as a child. And um, one of the things she did that she told me about was she left very simply, she just left fruit. She left food wherever she could and whenever she could. And often that would happen at night when the work, when the construction sites with the slaves, the slave labor that was happening there during the day were empty. And she would go and uh, to great danger, of course, to herself. And she would leave um, as much of food as she was able to. So when I met her and she told me this story, there was something so simple and holy in that. And it was so important for me personally to hear somebody who had you know to actually feel the light in someone yes. that there was something other uh, uh, it wasn't just this pure awful darkness and i think i was really struggling with the project at the time thinking i was desperate for light i wanted to i needed to include it somehow where would i find it where was it and i found it in her and so i felt that i could only continue with the project if i was also going to show that and so what you see in the film is is alexandra as a 14 year old girl going about her nocturnal kind of uh, covert activities that she did and i shot it on a thermal camera because it's the thermal camera so basically what you're looking at there is heat and not light and it was it came out of the sort of dogma for the filming of all of it really which is i only wanted to use natural light i didn't want to use film lights apart from one occasion um where we used one film light everything else in the film uh, was shot with natural light or practical lights in other words if it was too dark in the house, then you know one of the characters would turn on a ceiling light or a desk lamp or something like that. I wanted to keep out all of the kind of artifice of filmmaking. So when I came to shooting a fourteen-year-old girl in a field at you know nineteen forty-three in the middle of the night, I couldn't suddenly bring in kind of Hollywood light. And so it really simply is: well, what is the tool that I need to use in order to see her? And that led, obviously led us down the road towards thermal imaging. But it was all in in harmony with the this aim of sort of this 21st century lens of using modern technology, sharp lenses, you know, using everything, trying to make it as present tense as possible as a film and, and looking at that period through a 21st yeah. century eye. Really. I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation the BAFTA for, for Best Sound. And one of the reasons why this film will haunt people, I think, for many years, actually, <laughs> is the sound design of the movie. What was your brief to Johnny Burns uh, 
and his team, because essentially I, it's almost like the, there's two films, which presumably you assembled in, in the edit. There is the film that we are watching, and then there is another film that we are hearing over the walls in the Auschwitz camp itself. And the, and the experience of the film, I think, is the intersection of those two things. So it's a sort of, it was always in the writing. You know, I knew as soon as I'd committed to staying over the perpetrator side of the wall, I wasn't going to reenact the atrocities that were going on in the camps uh, on, on any level. I wasn't interested in doing that. Just from an ethical point of view, really, I, I, I just felt that was fundamentally wrong and is fundamentally wrong to uh, the films about this subject. So I was looking for a different way of interpreting it. And I realized, obviously, that, that nonetheless, I would be able to hear everything. And, and I think we come to this subject with these images in some ways sort of already seared into our consciousnesses. You know, we, we sound is such an interpretive medium. We understand, we get the pictures in our mind through the sounds that, that Johnny and I have assembled, really. And through that, we understand quite clearly what's happening on the other side of the wall. Johnny and I have been working together for over 20 years, so we, we got a well-drilled method. My last film that I did with Johnny was Under the Skin, and then Under the Skin, it was very much about using real-world sound. We would go out and get film recording, you know, where, where we needed to. And this film was more of that, and so there were months and months of the kind of gathering, creating a kind of repository of sound, cataloging it all, you know, shouts and screams and industrial sounds and all sorts. So it was, a you know, trying to anticipate where the kind of sounds we would need might be happening. With astonishing results, Jonathan. And I just wonder, just finally, what the cost was for you. You know, I mean, I know you almost walked away a number of times. Do you have other ideas which you work on at the same time just to have some levity? I mean, when you've been immersed in this appalling subject for 10 years, how do you keep hold of your humanity? (laughs) Well, I mean, it's... um... You know, I'm certainly still processing the journey I've been on. It's, it's, it, it, there's no question that it doesn't take its toll. It does and has, and and it, and not only to me, to other people who worked on the film as well. So, quite simply, though, it's through friendship, love, family, we support, joy, comedy. You find those times together. You can't go through this kind of thing and without the kind of normal sort of rhythms of life happening alongside. Yes. Um, I also think, Simon, that you go into these dark places to to make this sort of thing, but really, you're not. You're not left in the dark place. The point of going there is to bring it out into the light so that we can see it, so that we can actually walk around it and see what that thing is. I'm not still there. And just finally, I wonder what your father would have made of it, Jonathan, because I know his advice to you originally was, he, you know, I think he said to let it rot, just to just, to, just to not go there. And I know he's not with us anymore, but what... Well, do you allow yourself to to wonder what he'd have made of this? I do, and and of course I think about him often, and I think about his reaction to how the film's been received, and uh, yeah, no, I'm certainly be very proud of what we've done. I understand why he said that to me. Of course I did, and it, I would wish that we wouldn't need to make a film like this anymore, you know. But clearly we we still need to, and and really the job of filmmakers is to uh, find a new way of presenting it and, and a, par- a new paradigm really for a new generation. But it's by no means the final word. Clearly, it's it's hopefully there are other doors off of that room that I've opened that other filmmakers walk through and continue. But I think it's as important as the museum is that the fact that the museum still exists and and how crucial that is to our species. I believe. I think we need to retell this story as. Uh, rigorously and um, seriously as we can. Jonathan Glazer, appreciate your time with us. Wish you all the best for the Oscars and congratulations again on the BAFTAs. Thank you for talking to us. Thank you, Simon. Appreciate it. Jonathan Glazer talking about uh, his movie Zone of Interest. We've had lots of correspondence about it. Um, They did well at the BAFTAs. Yes, very well. There is this strange, I mean, as we've said before, Awards are nonsense, but they feel particularly nonsensical when you're dealing with these kind of issues. But he has come up with an astonishing film. So let's hope that the Oscars sort of 
pick it up and run with it as well. I think what was impressive about that conversation is just how uh, the clarity of his of his vision. I mean, you know, you were asking him obviously intelligent questions, but he's he's so clear about what he's doing and why. And when, for example, you were asking about the thermal imaging, mm. that explanation of exactly why you do that, why you can't bring in lights, why you do it in this way, why that has to be a part of the story. Um, I do think that's you can see when you see zone of interest uh, a, a a real kind of laser focus clarity, and I think that that's one of the things that makes it an interesting companion piece um, to Occupied City, which is much more a kind of musing, a general meditation. And when you were talking to the makers of that film a couple of weeks ago. They were talking much more about just pl putting stuff in front of the audience, and you know, and mm. the, the, the kind of the repetition of it being the the thing that has a, has a sort of trance-like state. These films could not formally be more different, and yet they are both. And I said this before; they are both doing this thing about looking at something in a way that makes you see it in a, in a light that perhaps you. Have. I mean, I'm not saying will change your opinion of these terrible events because these are terrible events and everyone knows that. But in order to revisit them, we have to find new ways of talking about them, new ways of expressing them. And I think in that interview, he he did that incredibly eloquently. Yes. So if you haven't seen Zone of Interest, uh, try and get to see it if at all possible. Um, but as with Occupied City, give yourself some time afterwards. Of course. Yes, absolutely. Um, last week, we spoke to Michael Winterbottom. His new film is Shoshana, and that's out this week. Yes, staying with... Um, complicated subject matter. So this is the new film from the writer and co-director Michael Winterbottom, who uh, whose back catalogue, whose extraordinary back catalogue includes Welcome to Sarajevo, 24-Hour Party People, A Cock and Bull Story, A Mighty Heart, Greed, for which we interviewed Steve Coogan. I mean, the thing about Michael Winterbottom, he will turn his hand to whichever project he is interested in. And, you know, whether it's deadly serious or absurdly fantastically comedic. He appears to do everything with the, the same level of commitment. So this is based on a true life story of love and war. The film was originally called, I learned this from you, originally called Promised Land, mm -hmm. set between the world wars in what was then known as British-controlled mandatory Palestine. So uh, the, the bit of history, United Kingdom and France divided what had been Ottoman Syria under the Sykes-Picot Agreement, and the Balfour Declaration of 1917, which Britain had promised its support for the establishment of a Jewish national home in Palestine, then leads to mandatory Palestine um, established in 1920. So this is an area... Can I just in, ask, sorry, just yes. is it mandatory or mandated? It's called mandatory. Mandatory. Thank you. Sorry, I was just... No, is that okay? Yeah, yeah fine. Um, and I, you know, I should say I am no authority in this matter. I mean, your your knowledge of history is much better than I am. So this is an area into which Jewish settlers are moving following the declaration of um, a national home state as a principle. Obviously, friction with the uh, Arab population. The British are supposedly policing the growing hostility, which includes bombings, killings, and of course, increasingly reprisal attacks. Screen Discovery, Irina, correct me if I'm pronouncing it, Irina Starschenbaum. I do believe that I believe is that's correct. correct. Who learned Hebrew for the role. Yes, as Michael which, Winterbottom told us, that's commitment. That is. Yeah, I'd like you to do this role. And, the, you know, it, one of the, Alicia Vikander, 
learned a language to do a movie. So, hey. Anyway, so she is Shoshana Borokov, who is daughter of uh, Bear Borokov, who was one of the founders of socialist Zionism. Douglas Booth is Tom Wilkin, assistant superintendent in the British Palestine Police, then moves into intelligence. They have a budding relationship, which becomes a flashpoint as the tensions arise between the various warring factions. Are the British police there to police the Arabs and the Jews equally? What are the British allegiances? What are the British prejudices? Is the relationship between these two central people a source of possible conflict? Is what's playing out in their relationship actually a microcosm of everything else that's going on? Let's see a clip. Hello. Hello. How was it? Bad. Why? What happened? They chose Morton to replace Ralph. He knows nothing about Tel Aviv. Why did they choose him over you? I don't know. You know everyone. Yeah, well, maybe that's the problem. They want someone who knows no one, who knows nothing. So in a way, that scene kind of encapsulates, you know, it starts off with him talking about Morton. That's Jeffrey Morton, played by Harry Melling, a man of brutally uncompromising methods who believes that the relationship between those two characters is preventing the the man who is meant to be their man in the area from clamping down on the so-called Stern Gang, the paramilitarist Zionists who, who, during the course of the drama, vowed to get rid of, to get the Brits out of Palestine. So the story is a mix of history and romance, and it's told with a deftness that makes very complicated historical detail understandable. I mean, I knew some of this, but much of it I didn't. And I did think that it's, it is deftly done in how it explains how these different factions relate to each other. And I think you could go into it knowing almost nothing and follow the political uh, uh, you know, story playing out. The whole film seems to play out in this kind of liminal space in which all boundaries, geographical, political, ethical, strategic, romantic, are all blurred and all allegiances therefore become problematic. And if you had conceived it as a fiction, you'd be accused of overwriting, of saying this is too neat, this is too pat. The fact that most of what the story tells us is actually true, I think gives it a kind of a real sense of bite, that this relationship does become a microcosm of a much wider conflict. And the way in which those parallels work isn't just, you know, there's that, um, there's that phrase, uh, pathetic fallacy. Yeah? Pathetic fallacy is like... I yes, I don't think I've ever used it. Okay, well, it doesn't mean pathetic as in, you know, as it derogates. Pathetic fallacy, is, as far as I understand, it's like somebody is, uh, they're having stormy thoughts and tempestuous thoughts, therefore outside it is stormy and tempestuous. I believe that's, but, but that it, I, I'm sure that a, a literary professor will write in and correct me. But that is kind of playing out here that what's happening between these central characters is mirroring this wider growing conflict. And the weird thing about it is, that it doesn't feel contrived. I mean, I understand it doesn't feel contrived because what we're seeing is based in fact, but it's much more to do with the fact that whatever Project Winterbottom does, he does have a way of making things seem, and I do not mean this as a criticism at all, making things seem matter of fact. There's a moment in 24-hour party people when a character playing Howard DeVoto 
he's replaced on screen by the actual Howard DeVoto, who's playing the janitor, who says, I am Howard DeVoto, and this never happened. But it because because of the way that Michael Winterbottom does it, it doesn't feel like some terrible, you know, fourth wall breaking thing. It's just like, oh, so when you're watching this, you don't find yourself thinking, I'm, I'm sorry, which genre is it? Because it is, you know, it's fitting across so many different genres. You think, okay, yeah, fine. I I accept this. I buy into all of this. I'm finding it intriguing. I'm finding it interesting. Performances are, performances are very fine, particularly the central performance. And the idea that you would learn a whole language in order to perform a role is, is, is astonishing. But more importantly, the fact that it is addressing an incredibly complicated historical situation in a manner that is quick enough on its feet that it doesn't get bogged down. And that it was interesting in your interview with Winterbottom, he kept saying it's a romance first and foremost. It is a romance first and foremost, but it is a romance in which what's happening in that relationship is being mirrored yes. horribly by what's happening behind it. I, I liked it. And if you and if you go to it thinking uh, this is going to be like a history of the Middle East, it absolutely it is absolutely, not, it absolutely is not that. It, and also, there are very few Arab characters in there because it is specifically a story about a Jewish woman exactly. and a British man. And that's, in fact, you you point. raised that question with yeah. him. You said if people go in expecting this other story, what will it's they not, get? They're not going to yeah, go see a different film. It's not that film. Uh, so that is Shoshana. And if you missed last week's program, uh, Michael Winterbottom uh, explains it all in the podcast uh, that came out uh, last week. The laughter lift will be on the way after this. Hey, it's Ben Bailey Smith here, Substitute Taker. And this episode is brought to you by Better Help. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. If I had an extra hour, slotted into my day, I'd actually get through a question, questions. you know, it's, I can never quite fit the extra shows in. We all live busy lives these days and everything seems to move at a hundred miles an hour. So how do we know what to make room for? Like, how do we know what's really important when our lives are happening so quickly? Therapy can help you find what matters to you. And if you know what matters to you, you can do more of it. And isn't that why we're really here? So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. And it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. With over a thousand therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise. And our listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash kermode. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash kermode. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. So just ahead of uh, a little bit of what's on, I know, Mark, that you're the reason that you're looking particularly down at the mouth is because we haven't had the laughter lift yet. I, I am, yes. This is this is going to be this is, a give, give me the you. lift that I need. Okay, play the music. <laughs> you need to do the joke before you start laughing. You know I, that. I don't, I don't know about you, Mark. Have you had a good week? I have. Mine's been a little bit mixed. You'll be unsurprised to know. Pop round to a relative's house to visit their new baby for the first time. Mm-hmm. 
You've had three children. Would you mind winding him? They said. Seemed a bit harsh. So I just gave him a little Chinese burn instead. And it didn't really go down very well. Winding. Oh, I see. Winding. Punch in the stomach. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's but that's but a Chinese. Yeah. Okay. You I'm sure you can't say that anymore anyway. Chinese burn. <laughs> no, that's true. But everyone knows what it is. It's like farting in an elevator. That gag was wrong on so many levels. Some good news, though. I'm excited to announce that I released my very own fragrance this morning. Did you? Folks, <laughs> was, on, was, folks <laughs> on the Northern Line didn't seem to be very hey! I did my. Good, I haven't even heard these jokes. I did my good deed for the uh, for this morning, uh, Mark. I offered old Doris, our next door neighbour, twenty quid to give me a ride on her stairlift. I think she's going to take me up on it. Take me up on it. Yeah. Yeah, I thought it was like a mere Stanner joke, but... No, because that would be advertising. They're not yeah. sponsoring this. Are they not? Okay. And actually, if they did, we might feel, I'm not <laughs> sure we want to be sponsored by Stanner Chairlift. Um, anyway, so that, that was is. very good. Yeah, no, that was that was very good. Okay. Anyway, uh, can I... I... Can I just throw this in? What? Pathetic fallacy is the attribution of human emotion to inanimate objects. So the sun was smiling down upon him. The raindrops wept around her. So I was getting it wrong. Okay, well, thank you. I'm just correcting myself in real time. In which case, Professor of English, you can stop writing now because we've already corrected it. We corrected it. it. Thank you. And Mark corrected himself in one line. And I know, Professor, you were like on six pages. (laughs) Exactly. uh, Which you were going to send in. Anyway, let's find out what's on. This is where you send us a little voice note about a cinematic-related occurrence which is happening near you, like this, for example. Hey, Mark and Simon, it's Miriam from Molten Film Club here. We've got a very special screening happening on Sunday, 3rd of March. We'll be hosting the Yorkshire and North East Film Archive Social Cinema Programme for one day only. We'd love to see you there. Find out more at Molten Film Club on Instagram. TTOF. TTOF. Ta-ta. Tinkety Tonk Old Fruit. Oh, Tinkety Tonk Old Fruit. Tinkety Tonk Old Fruit. There you go. T- I'd never seen it like that. I was thinking Tata for now, but that's Jimmy Young, TTFN. TTFN. Tinkety Tonk Old Fruit. Anyway, Miriam, thank you. Inviting us to Morton Film Club's social cinema screening on the 3rd of March. Okay, so send us, if you have something that's cinematically related that you'd like to shout about, send it to a little voice note and attach it to an email. Send it to correspondence at codemo.com. One more thing before we're done. Yeah, well, one big thing. One big thing before we're done. Wicked Little Letters, which is a new film by Thea Sharrock, who has a background in theatre and TV, reunites, as I said before, Lost Daughter co-stars Olivia Coleman and Jesse Buckley. Uh, Thea Sharrock's uh, previous credits include Me Before You, uh, and apparently she's currently working on a Frank Cottrell Boyce script. So this is from a script by Johnny Sweet, inspired by the real-life case of the Littlehampton libels. Do you know anything about them? No, I'm, I'm familiar with Littlehampton. But not the libels. But not the libels okay. of Littlehampton. There is a book about them. Anyway, story of a community in which poisoned pen letters, poisoned pen letters, lead to personal intrigue and uh, miscarriages of justice. 1920s, idyllic town. Olivia Coleman is the prim, proper and God-fearing Edith Swan, who lives with her father, Edward, played by Tim Spall. Excellent. So we're doing great already. She has been receiving weirdly obscene letters, which she tells the police are almost certainly the work of her neighbour, Rose Gooding. A brash... Single mother, played by Jessie Buckley. Um, Jessie Buckley's partner uh, died in the war, so now Rose is raising a daughter, whilst also in her spare time carousing in pubs, breaking the rules of social norms, and using sweary language in public. So when her neighbour starts receiving sweary letters, clearly it's the next-door neighbour. They were friends at one point, now not. This is enough for the police, particularly Constable Papawick, played by Hugh Skinner. However, 
WPC Gladys Moss, played by Angela Vassen, is sceptical, something which is dismissed by her colleagues who think she should just make the tea. So all the fingers are pointed, court cases are held, and the wrong people are grabbed. Here's a clip. I forgive you, Rose. Edith, I didn't do it. Who's that? Uh, that's me. Sorry. I thought this was more of a private situation. But also, I didn't want to leave in case of problems, so I held position. The father and I have been discussing a sermon I might give at St Catherine's. We're all positively fizzing with the idea. And I had a passage I wanted to read to you, too. That's what I meant by good timing. Twist of fate. No, thank you. No, thank you. It's very short, quite energising. We don't want me any more energised. Not unless you want a good bannocking. A physical threat. It's like a trapdoor to hell opens up everywhere you tread. I'm not actually evil, you know. And she's not. She's just a very, very different person to the character played by Olivia Commons. So the film opens with an American Hustle-style declaration that this story is more true than you'd think. And after watching, I knew nothing about the thing beforehand, went did a bit of Googling, turns out there's more of this is true than you would think. Part of the pleasure is that these poison pen letters are really, really peculiar. Peculiar because they are very sweary, but in a very, very odd way. Now, I can't repeat any of the dialogue, and that's pretty much one of the few clips. We, we can't give you a clip in which they're reading out the letters because the letters are fantastically sweary, and it is genuinely the case that hearing Olivia Coleman reading out fantastically and really oddly sweary letters is hilariously funny, as are, you know, many of the ways. So the thing when they get into court, the letters have to be read out. Because I, I associate Littlehampton with my granny, because she used to yeah. live in Rustington-by-Sea. Rustington-by-Sea. Right. So, uh, have I taken furnished lodgings down that's on... That's right. Michael Flanders. <laughs> right, that's right. Michael Flanders. Used... <laughs> so in my head, no one swears in, in Rustington or Littlehampton. It's just not yes. what, what is done. Well, of course, the weird thing about the letters is that... That they are, that there's something Chaucerian about them, but they also appear to have been written by somebody for whom swearing is a second language. And this, of course, is a plot point. If somebody who had a, you know, a, a foul mouth was to sit down and write a sweary letter, this isn't the sweary letter they would write. And of course, you know, although the film is it is an unfurling mystery, there isn't much mystery. You can tell right from the very beginning what's going on if you know anything about the Littlehampton uh, uh, libel case. Of it. And I think by now, because they've been doing the, the PR campaign, people do know the story. But the whole point is that the letters appear to have been written by somebody who is who, who has come to swearing, but it doesn't really hasn't really got the hang of it, hasn't really got the measure of it. And that's one of the things that's so funny about this. And I have to tell you, I thought the film was laugh out loud funny. I mean, I I really like a good comedy, and these are it's a really really terrific cast. But it part of it was just because as somebody who enjoys swearing, um, I think it, when it's done properly, it can be terrific. Uh, I had I did at the BFI Southbank. Uh, the director and the key cast was doing an interview with them, and I asked Olivia Coleman if she if she liked swearing, and she gave a fantastically sweary answer which I absolutely can't repeat I did also ask the director how the rating was and the rating is 15 the director said that she had actually wanted to go for a 12 this is partly because you will remember when the King's Speech happened there was that sort of fuss about the fact that the King's Speech had got a 12 because it's it uses and this is exactly what the BBFC said 12 for strong language 
in a speech therapy context. And you'll remember that you did an interview with Ken Loach in which he was very put out that one of his films had been slapped with, I think it was an 18 rating because mm. of the language. And the argument was, is it okay if it's posh people swearing? Well, in the case of this... It was all I could do to stop him from illustrating. I know, I know. And trying to stop Ken Loach doing anything, yes. you're onto a sticky wicket. So in the BBFC description of this, it says there is infrequent, very strong language, that word. There is also frequent strong language. And then I can't read you what it says other than f often used in a sexual sense. Milder bad language includes, includes the B word, the W word, the T word, the, the other W word, the C word, the other, the other C word, the P word, the SL word, tart, I can say that, strumpet, I can say that, the A word, the other A word, the SH word, the B word, the other B word, the other other B word, the word that begins with P and ends with is, sod, I think we're fine, balls, I think we're fine, tits, God and Jesus, I think we're fine as well. <laughs> That's an interesting combination that you finished with. Why don't you just assume that every word that you've ever heard is every in? Every word that you've ever heard is in, but all written in these fantastically sort of Baroque style of in the manner of somebody swearing as if their inner soul was having some kind of mad fusion fit and it was all coming out in these letters. I think that the the thing that makes the film really, really work is the performances. Livia Coleman is great as this sort of pious woman who's actually sort of rather delighted about all this attention that she's getting because she's getting these abusive letters. And then she's, you know, suddenly the, the vicar wants her to give a, a to give a sermon and everyone's, oh, you know, she's suffering so marvelously, but she's so Christian. She doesn't want to, she doesn't want to condemn anyone. And I, you know, I do find that very funny. I think that uh, Jessie Buckley is a force of nature on screen. And I, you know, I think, her performance is really great. It's a brash counterpoint to Olivia Coleman. Angela Vassan, who was BAFTA nominated for We Are Lady Parts, has got the, the more difficult role because she is Sussex's first woman police uh, constable. And she's the person who says, this case doesn't add up. It doesn't, why would she send letters when she'll just, why she could just swear at her over the fence? But she's also the centre of this allegiance amongst the women folk, most notably Joanna Scanlon, who has an absolute riot there's a routine that she does about a chicken and an egg, which is, again, as I said, laugh out loud funny. The one thing I would say is this. Some of the reviews have been a little bit uh, equivocal. You need to see the film with an audience. It, it really is one of those ones that when the room starts laughing, it becomes, you know, it finds its feet. And I'm sure that if you watched it on your own, feeling sniffy, you know, you could probably take against it. But... I thought it was really good fun. I thought I really enjoyed laughing at it with it. And, you know, not least because it's, you know, a, it's a very entertaining thesis on the poisonous quality of closed community life, but also on the weird gloriousness of the English language. I think Stephen Fry would love it. Also, the weird gloriousness of Littlehampton and Rustington on Sea. Rustington on Sea. I'd like I've to see this. furnished lodgings. Yes. I would like to see this film in the Rustington on Sea playhouse. I bet you it plays like an absolute. Gangbusters there. Yeah. Well, uh, your comments for next week, please. Correspondence at kerbinamo.com. Uh, take two has landed alongside this particular take. And then some questions with some schmestions questions. will be with you on Wednesday. And that's the end of take one. This has been a Sony Music Entertainment production. This week's team was Lily, Gully, Vicky, Zaki, Matthias, whose name has been mispronounced by everybody since we started working with him. Until we finally got it corrected. It's Matthias. As everyone's laptop was failing. That's right. Uh, Richie and Beth. Uh, Michael was the producer. Simon was the redactor. What is your film of the week? Wicked Little Letters. Uh, take By two heck. has uh, landed adjacent. 
Uh, is police constable a P word and a C word? I think it is. <laughs> anyway, uh, take two has landed adjacent to this and take three with you on Wednesday. <laughs>